0: Let me invite you to turn again to the book of Jude, verses 20 through 23. Jude is the second to last book in the Bible, and it's only one chapter. And so we'll turn to that chapter and read the 20th verse through the 23rd verse. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that we might hear what it says. God, these very clear exhortations to us and put them into practice And God, we pray that as we sang, we might, uh, even as we consider exhortations about what we should do, that we might think uh, and be reminded of what Christ has done for us so that we might do these things and that His name would be sweet in our ears. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, this is our third week on these four verses, and I just want to point out again briefly that the main point in jude twenty through twenty three is found uh, in the beginning of verse twenty one The only command, especially in verses twenty through twenty one the only command there is this: "Keep yourselves." in the love of God. And that command is the main point. That's Jude's main objective for us that we would keep ourselves in the love of God, namely that we would keep our love for God burning brightly. And the other clauses, the other verbs there are merely subpoints that modify that main point. They are stops along the journey of us keeping our love for God going. And so Jude is really saying one thing, keep yourselves in the love of God, and then he's giving four different ways that we can actually accomplish that by building ourselves up on our most holy faith, verse 20, by praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 20b, and then at the end of verse 21 by waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and then in verses 22 and 23 by snatching sinners and backsliders out of their sin and out of their backsliding. So he says, we build the bonfire of our love for God by going into the woods of Jude 20 through 23 and doing the hard work of hauling the logs of these spiritual disciplines into our lives and throwing them on the fires of our devotion. He says, if you want to keep your love for God burning bright, you must do these things. You must commit yourselves to these disciplines. And sometimes they're difficult disciplines. They're hard work, but they produce good fruit. And so last week we considered the first of those disciplines, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, building yourselves up on the truths of the Scripture, particularly the truths of the Gospel. And this morning we're going to consider the second of those disciplines, the second of these logs that we should be throwing onto the fires of our zeal, namely praying in the Holy Spirit. How do you keep yourself loving God? Well, by praying, Jude says, and by praying in the Holy Spirit. So we'll just focus on those words this morning. And someone already is probably thinking, how is he going to spin out 45 minutes on five words? Well, maybe we'll go less than 45 minutes this morning. Maybe. Um, but, but maybe there's more to see maybe there's more to see in Jude 20b than initially meets the eye. In other words, when we look at these words and think about what else the scripture says along these same lines, we might realize that there are a lot of things we need to remember and apply this morning. And I hope that will be true. So I want to just begin by looking at that word praying closely, and I want to to ask some questions of the word praying. Jude is telling us that we should be praying in order to keep ourselves in the love of God, but What do we know about praying? What kinds of questions should we ask about praying? Well, the first question that I want to ask is, why is it that we sometimes struggle to pray? Why is it that God's people who know God and who love God, who have been born of His Spirit, sometimes struggle to pray? It's no secret that many of us do, is it? I would think that most Christians in America would say, you know, there are times where I just really struggle with this discipline. In fact, I think if you took a survey of Christians in our country particularly and said, what is it that you struggle with most in the Christian life? What area of your Christian life would you like most to improve? Would you like most to see change? A large percentage of people would say, boy, I wish I prayed better. I wish my prayer life was different than it is. And some of you, that might be your first response. If someone said to you, you're a Christian, you're walking with God, but what is it that you wish you could do better? What is it that you wish you could focus on more? What is it that you wish would improve in your life? Many of you would say the same thing. Man, I pray, but I don't pray like I wish I prayed. And the question is, why is that? Why do we say that? Why do I say that as well? Well, there may be a number of culprits. Uh, For some of us, it just may be plain out laziness. For some of us, it may be that our attention span is very short, and so as soon as we close our eyes to pray, we begin to think of a million other things, or even the prayer requests themselves uh, make us want to get up and start doing something instead of concentrating on prayer. Maybe it's just busyness for some of us. We've got so many other things going on that we don't have the time to sit down and pray that we would like. And all of those things can and must be remedied. Even your attention span can be remedied if you would fight against all the things that shorten your attention span, all the media-type things that shorten it, and try to build a practice of being able to pay attention. All these things, laziness, busyness, attention span, they can be remedied. But these are these are among the reasons why many American Christians struggle with prayer. And then I would add a fourth reason that uh, is I think, very prevalent, namely the lack of emphasis on prayer in churches. That is to say that so many congregations set aside very little time for corporate prayer. Usually, in many places, it's just a few minutes tacked on to a Bible study on Wednesday night, but the practice of having a real, actual prayer meeting where you just come together and pray... Is dying out in our culture. It once uh, would have been a common thing in churches that believe what we believe, and it's dying away. And so it's no wonder sometimes that individual Christians struggle to pray because their churches often struggle to pray. And I hope that won't be the case for you. But let me suggest a fifth reason why many of us struggle with our prayer life, struggle to pray as much as we should, struggle to concentrate in prayer, struggle perhaps to pray with real fervency, and this, this fifth reason I want to give you, I think, is maybe the root beneath all these other reasons that I've suggested. Namely, I suggest that many of us struggle in our prayer lives because praying doesn't seem very efficient. Let me say that again. I think many of us struggle in our prayer lives because praying doesn't seem very efficient. It doesn't seem like the most efficient use of our time. Now, probably we don't think of it that way consciously, and we would certainly never say, you know, I could do this. Or I could pray. Praying is really a waste of time. I'm going to go over here and work instead. We would never say that. And we probably don't think that way consciously. But as we move through our days, I think many of us, if we pay attention, realize that other things, many times good things, take precedence over prayer. Prayer. Other things seem more urgent than spending time in prayer. Other things appear that they will produce quicker results, more results, better results, more efficient uses of our time. And I'm not mainly here thinking about secular things like washing your bathtub or cutting your grass or cleaning out your garage. Though if the shoe fits, wear it. If those things keep you from praying, then perhaps that's what you need to hear. But what I'm suggesting now is that even other spiritual disciplines, even the ones that we're speaking about here in Jude 20-23, through often seem to us as though they're more efficient, more urgent, more gratifying, more immediately fruitful than prayer would be. For instance, if we sit down and study the Bible, we can walk away from that going, man, I learned something I never learned before, and I've built upon my store of knowledge. Or if we're going out and sharing the truth of the Bible, trying to win people to Christ, we may well see fruit from that. Or if we're doing something that is also a spiritual thing, I think, repairing the church roof. It's a physical thing, but it's a spiritual thing because it's God's work. We do that, and we can get to the end of the project and say it's done. We completed it. And we're thankful for that. But when we spend half an hour praying, nothing immediately tangible usually comes out of it. Nothing immediately tangible comes out of it. Most of the time, in other words, you don't usually pray, "God, we really um, we're struggling with our finances, and I'm going to pray about this, and then as soon as you say, "Amen," someone knocks on the door and hands you a $100 bill, right? There are stories of that kind of thing happening, but that's not usually how it works. Usually we pray and then we wait. And so praying, sometimes subconsciously, doesn't seem like it's getting as much done as working or studying or learning or evangelizing or whatever it may be. That's why for me, contrary to how many of you probably feel, for me, Mondays is my, one of my favorite days, maybe my favorite day to come in to work. And the reason for that is is because on Monday, I'm doing all the things I can check off on my list. I'm tying off loose ends from Sunday. I'm writing the article that I can do in one setting usually. I'm thinking about the songs we're going to sing and the scriptures we're going to read, and I can write all that down and check it off my list, and I can leave most Mondays and go, boy, I finished everything. And I like Mondays for that reason. I'm kind of a checking-off-the-list kind of person. Finishable, tangible projects help me. But I don't get that same sort of vibe when I pray. And probably most of the time, neither do you. We pray, and then we wait and we trust that our prayer was Helpful and that it was useful and that God will answer, but we don't see it right away. And therefore, unless you're really convinced of God's power, unless you're really convinced that God responds to prayer and that there will be results and the results will be better than if you just worked and didn't pray. Unless you're convinced of those things, then all these tangible things, even tangible spiritual things, will be more appealing to you. And you will gravitate towards disciplines that are more measurable and will provide more immediate results. Which is why perhaps this morning's sermon, this morning's clause here in Jude 20-23 through is the one we need to hear most of all. Because we can hear last week, we need to build ourselves up and we can start doing that and we can see results almost immediately. But this one is different. And so I suggest this is why there are so many Christians who who really know the Bible well, and yet who would confess, if there's one thing I could do better in my life, it's that I'm embarrassed about how little I pray or how much my prayer lacks fervency. And so it boils down, I think, to a lack of faith. And I confess my own neediness in this area. I'm just like many of you. So many other things that I can get done appeal to me more so than what I can do on my knees in prayer. But if I really believe that God answers prayer, if I really believe that prayer moves mountains, I would see this discipline as perhaps the most efficient use of time that I could possibly give. Because when I work, I work. And it's good to work for God. But when I pray, God works. And that's a different thing, isn't it? Let me give you an example just of how... Prayer is actually efficient and time saving and headache saving. Uh, Anthony, many of you know Anthony, missionary in Ethiopia, a friend of mine. We have a mutual friend whose church was going through some real turmoil because. Um, they had built two buildings. They had an older building and then they had a newer building. And some people wanted to start um, using the newer building. They built the new building just to have some fellowship stuff and activities. But some people said, we need to meet in that building. It's a newer building. It's a better building. And a lot of other people said, no, the older building's in the neighborhood. That's where we've always met. We want to meet in the older building. And the church was in real danger of maybe not splitting but just being divided and perhaps splitting because of these two buildings. Now, what were they going to do? Well, they needed to talk it through and think it through. Um, But this this mutual friend of ours, the pastor of this church, he was new at the church, and he said, we just need to fast and pray. We're going to meet together once a week. Um, I think it was on one of their regular service times. And we're going to fast and we're going to pray specifically that God will give us wisdom about this building. And they did that for a few weeks. And Anthony called me one day and said, well, you know, uh, so-and-so, called me and uh the building inspectors came for their yearly whatever they do to inspect the building and they said that it's full of asbestos and it can't be inhabited anymore unless they do several hundred thousand dollars worth of remodeling to it. And there is the solution to their two building problem where their buildings couldn't be used anymore. And so they had to get rid of it. And Anthony's comment was this. He said, "You know, Robert is the name of the pastor. He said, you know, that kind of thing happens all the time for Robert. And what he was saying is Robert prays. Robert prays instead of Robert having to really kind of wrestle with the church people and, and, and make it go the right way or the way that they thought it should go or the way that it should go. He prayed and he got the church to pray. And without them having to, to argue or fight or ever having a discussion about it, the problem was solved. And I use that as an example to say I'm sure you've seen instances in your own life where you wrestled and you, you thought and you, you imagined and you brainstormed and you tried to figure out how it was going to work and you worked hard at it. And then somewhere along the line you said, you know, we should pray. And you prayed, and maybe not that day, maybe not that week, but it became clear that if you would pray, God would provide the answer. Maybe not apart from your work all the time, but God would provide The answer, And so I'm just saying prayer is the most practical thing we can do as Christians and as a church. It's the most efficient use of time that there is. And I think that has usually to be learned by experience. We have to learn it by doing it, but we have to learn it. We must learn it. And since it's experience that teaches us the efficiency of prayer, the usefulness of time spent on our knees, we simply need to do it. We simply need to give ourselves this experience, to try it and see if God doesn't prove to us that prayer is time well spent. And so if you're struggling to pray and you're going, man, I just don't know how to get started, just close your eyes, get by yourself and, and start to pray and see if it doesn't prove helpful to you and efficient for you. Now, those of you who are here on Wednesday night, I think, can vouch for that. It seems like there are a lot of other things we could have done for an hour and a half on Wednesday. But the time was helpful. Many of you visibly when you left were, at least as I looked at you, seemed visibly refreshed. And many of you have discovered as the week has gone on that God is already answering the prayers. God is already blessing that time that we spent just devoted to this one thing. And so I say to you this morning, just do it. Just give yourselves to prayer and see if it doesn't prove valuable to you. And that leads me to my second question that we need to ask of this passage. The first question is, why do we often struggle in prayer? The second question is, how do we go about praying? I'm telling you now you just need to pray, but how do you go about doing that? What should you do? Well, what does the Bible say about how we go about praying? Let me give you three, three responses or a three-part response. The Bible points out that we should be praying in our closets. The Bible points out that we should be praying in our congregation. And the Bible points out, most importantly, here in Jude verse 20, that we should be praying in the Holy Spirit. The thing about each one of those briefly first, not here in Jude 20, but uh, in other places, the Bible says we should be praying in our closets. In other words, we should be praying on our own. I don't think Jesus means you have to literally go into a closet to pray. But you need to find somewhere and be on your own and talk to God through Christ. And just to see that, I want you to notice Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. You can turn there if you like or you can listen. Uh, we're going to look at a number of passages this morning. But Matthew 6, 6 says this, Jesus speaking. When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father, who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, part of his emphasis in that chapter is that you pray in secret, that everybody else doesn't have to know that you're um, so prayerful. But part of his emphasis is that you go in your inner room, that you go in your closet, that you have a private prayer life, that you have a private personal relationship with God. And even if you don't know what to say to God, just get in that alone place. Get in that closet and talk to Him. Nothing can replace that. Now just to drive home, that nothing can replace that. To drive home how important this prayer life is. Again, another passage from the Gospels. This time Mark one thirty-five. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And that's not the only time he did this. This was a habit for Jesus to go out by himself and pray. And you say, well, it's hard to find time to do that. Well, imagine you're Jesus and you have thousands of people following you everywhere. You get in a boat and you go across the lake and they go around and they run to the other side of the lake by land and meet you there. But he had to do it. And isn't that amazing? Here's Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is, as we read in Hebrews 1, God himself Made flesh, who has the Holy Spirit without measure, and he needs to get by himself and pray, and if Jesus needs to do that, then how much more do you and I? I know some of you've heard that logic all your life since Sunday school. If Jesus needs to pray, so do you, but it 's real logic that 's the reason why you 've heard it so many times that 's the reason why preachers say this all the time. If Jesus has to pray, then surely I do, surely you do. so just make a go of it. Jesus laid down His life so that you could talk to God. Isn't that what Hebrews 4 says? That we can approach God boldly because of what Jesus has done in our place, on our behalf, living a sinless life and dying in our place so that we can have access to God and have access to God the way a child has to his daddy. And maybe that's helpful too. If you don't know what to say when you go to pray, just remember that this God, if you're trusting Jesus, this God is your Father. He's a Father who loves you. And if you can just remember, He's my Dad, He's my Father, then that will help your lips to open. And you'll begin to be able to talk to Him. So each of us should be praying in our closets. And also, the Scriptures teach us that we should be praying in the congregation. In the congregation. Just notice again here in Jude that these verses, I'll remind you, are written to a group of people. Keep yourselves, plural, in the love of God. Jude is not mainly writing to individuals, though we can apply what he says individually because the individuals make the group. But he's thinking about the group as a whole and he's saying to the group, keep yourselves in the love of God. And one of the ways you do that as a group is praying in the Holy Spirit. And we can notice this in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, which is certainly a broad survey of what was happening in the early church, it doesn't record every event that happened. But in the broad survey of events that the book of Acts records, it records no less than nine congregational prayer meetings. Nine of them in the book of Acts. Suggesting that in the early church, coming together to pray as a body was a normative thing, it was something that was happening. Consistently, And I just want to point out three of those places to you. The first one, and, and you might follow along here, I think it would help you to do so. They're all in the book of Acts. The first is Acts chapter 1 and 2. In Acts 1, uh, you may recall that Jesus uh, is about to ascend into heaven. And in verse 8, before he ascends into heaven after his resurrection and his ministry on the earth, he speaks to his apostles and to his other followers. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest part of the earth. So he says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. But, but the implication is he hasn't come in this unusual way yet. These were believers. They possessed the Holy Spirit. But there was going to be something of a revival that was going to happen. that was going to empower them. And they were waiting for that to happen. And I just want you to notice, what were they doing while they waited? We'll scan down to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So what are they doing while they're waiting on Jesus to come, or waiting on the Holy Spirit to come in power? Well, they're continually, with one mind, praying together as a group. And then... You'll notice that in Acts two, verse one, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Presumably, the same place we're talking about. Presumably, the same thing together. And then, in the student, Holy Spirit came in power. I'll just point out to you that I think it's no accident that the Holy Spirit came in power while they were together praying. Now, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come, right? It wasn't simply because they were together praying that the Holy Spirit came and that we had Pentecost and so on. This was the promise of Jesus. It was the promise of the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. I'm just pointing out that it's no accident that that promise was fulfilled during a prayer meeting. I think that's vital for us to see. Turn over to Acts 16 and you'll see another one of these corporate prayer gatherings. Acts 16:11 through... 13 We're on a missionary journey with Paul. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is with him on this segment of the journey. And so he speaks uh, in the first person. And he says, verse 11, "...so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days." And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, this prayer meeting that they were having by the riverside proved an evangelistic opportunity. You see a hint of that in verse 13. You see the fruit of that in verse 14. And that's instructive in and of itself, that prayer often leads to evangelism. But what I mainly want to point out here is that these early Christians had this instinct on the Lord's Day to gather together and to pray together. To pray together was their instinct. And then notice also scanning back backwards in the book of Acts again to chapter 4. Chapter 4 Acts chapter 4 records what I think is the most remarkable prayer meeting in the Bible and therefore the most remarkable prayer meeting that ever was. Verses 23 and 24 is where we'll we'll begin. When they had been released namely Peter and John had been imprisoned or, or not imprisoned but pulled aside and and treated roughly because of their preaching of the gospel and their miracles that they were working. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they, the congregation, their, their companions that it's talking about, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and so on. And then notice what happens. They pray. They pray for God's strength. They pray that God would thwart His enemies. And notice what happens in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now again, I just instance Wednesday night for those of you who are here. Did the room shake Wednesday night? No, the room didn't shake. But was the Holy Spirit there in a palpable way? I think so. I think many of you would agree that He was there in an unusual way, even in a way that is not usual to our closet prayer experiences. He comes when His people are gathered. There's just something about God's people gathering to pray together. And so I just again commend it to you. We're going to have a a special time of prayer for revival two Wednesdays from now on the 22nd at the Parsonage. And we gather every Sunday at 9 o'clock to pray together. And oh, that we would pray so that even if the room doesn't shake, we will know that the Holy Spirit was there just the same. So how should we go about praying? We should be praying in the closet. According to the Bible, we should be praying in the congregation. And most vitally, whether we're in the closet or whether we're in the congregation, we should be praying Jude 20 in the Holy Spirit. And how do we pray in the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Well, that's the third big question that we should ask this morning. Why do we sometimes struggle to pray? How do we go about praying? And now thirdly, if one of the ways we go about praying is, is to pray in the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Is it just that you close your eyes and sort of wait for the mood to strike and that's the Spirit? What does He mean here? Once again, I want to give you a three-part answer. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, first, praying in the Holy Spirit means that you don't always pray on schedule. I think that's what it means. You don't always pray on schedule. Now, habits are important. i just emphasize two habits. Closet prayer and congregational prayer. Those are two habits. Jesus had a habit of prayer. The early church had habits of when they would pray and where they would pray and so on. So I'm not setting that aside. I'm just saying that if we're led by the Holy Spirit, sometimes He may break the bounds of our habits. Sometimes He may wake us up in the middle of the night thinking about that person with whom we went to high school, thinking about that person that was in line next to us at the grocery store and prompting us to pray. Or sometimes he may stop us in the middle of the work day and prompt us to pray. And so my contention is that if the Holy Spirit comes in the middle of the night or comes during the middle of the day or even comes during the middle of my sermon and says to you, you need right now to bow your head and you need to pray for yourself or for her or for him or for that thing, My contention is to pray in the Holy Spirit means you obey that impulse. That's part of what it means to pray continuously, 1 Thessalonians 5. When Paul says to pray continuously, he doesn't mean that you never do anything but pray. He just means that all throughout the day, you're ready to pray. You're being guided by the Holy Spirit so that when He prompts you to pray, when He puts something in front of you about which you ought to be praying, you'll pray. And along those lines, let me just read to you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in Wales and then in London in the last century, and he wrote this to preachers, but I think it's just as applicable to the rest of us as well. This is from his book, Preaching and Preachers, but he writes this about prayer. Always respond to every impulse to pray. I would make this an absolute law. Always obey such an impulse. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it often leads to some of the most remarkable experiences. So never resist, never postpone it, never push it aside because you're busy. Always when the Spirit prompts you to pray, pray. Because if you wait so that you can pray on schedule, so that you can pray when you normally pray, many times you'll forget what you were supposed to pray for. And even if you remembered often that impulse, that movement of the Holy Spirit that would have guided you and filled you and helped your prayers be more zealous than they normally are, that impulse may not be there if you wait to go and pray about it tomorrow morning when you do your normal quiet time. And so praying in the Holy Spirit I think means that you don't always pray on schedule. Praying in the Holy Spirit secondly though means that you don't always pray your own thoughts. You don't always... Pray your own thoughts. Now, that's again not to say that we should never just pour out our thoughts to God and think out loud with Him and tell Him everything that's on our heart. Surely, much of our praying is just that, just telling God what's on our heart. And our Father's always ready to listen, isn't He? So I'm not setting that aside. But if we're to be sure that we're praying in the Holy Spirit, praying after His thoughts, then sometimes what we need to do is not just to pray what we're thinking about, but to put our elbows on either side of this book and pray the words and the thoughts of this book. Thanking God for what we see here. Letting the ideas that are presented to us on the page prompt our prayer requests. Even praying in biblical language. You may have noticed in Acts chapter 4, when the prayer meeting happened and the house shook, that the people were praying in the language of the Old Testament. They were quoting a psalm in their prayer. And you say, what does all this have to do with praying in the Holy Spirit? So I'm going to open the Bible and let the Bible guide my prayers. That sounds like a good idea, but how does that connect with Jude verse 20? Well, I just want you to recall that this book in Second Peter 1 is described as being uh, written by men moved by the Holy Spirit. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, Second Peter 1 says. And so if we're going to pray the Spirit's thoughts, and if we're going to pray with the Spirit's help, it would probably be a really good idea for us to put before ourselves the Spirit's writings, right? We tried to do this on Wednesday night. We opened up Romans five, one through eight, and we read it, and we tried to thank God for the gospel that's there, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And then we opened to this passage, Jude 20 through 23, and we tried to notice each of these individual exhortations and pray about each one so that the things that we were praying would be guided by the things that the Holy Spirit has already told us are important and important. And I think it went remarkably well. I hope that you felt that it did as well. But most of all, I know that we were praying after the mind of the Holy Spirit. Even if it had been difficult to pray, I know that if we take this book and we pray based on what we're reading in this book, that we're praying after the mind of the Holy Spirit because we're praying after His words. So praying in the Holy Spirit means you don't always simply pray your own ideas, but often you go to those of the Bible and let them form the petitions in your mouth for you. So praying in the Holy Spirit means you don't always pray on schedule, but when the Holy Spirit prompts and you obey every impulse to pray. Praying in the Holy Spirit means you don't always pray your own thoughts, but those are the Holy Spirit. And the best way to guarantee that is to put your elbows on either side of the Bible. And then thirdly, and I think as a summary and a foundation for those other two, praying in the Holy Spirit means you don't always know what to pray. If you're going to pray in the Holy Spirit, you're not always going to know what to pray. Now let me show you what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. This is the classic passage about praying in the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says in Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, just notice that phrase, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And what Paul is saying, I think, is that one of the ways that we pray in the Holy Spirit is being willing to admit sometimes, I don't know how to pray as I should. And not only being willing to admit that, but being okay with that. Being willing to run with that. I'm going to come to you. I don't even know what I'm supposed to pray. I don't know how to pray as I should. You guide me. That's part of what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now again, I'm not setting aside uh, thoughtful lists, those kinds of things. I'm a proponent of prayer lists. I have a daily list of things I want to pray for each day of the week. I have a list of all of you um, that I pray through. So I'm not saying that such lists are antithetical to praying in the Holy Spirit. But what I'm saying is that sometimes my lists aren't enough. Sometimes I need to begin my prayer by admitting I do not know how to pray as I should. I don't know, God, what's needed in this situation. I don't know who to pray for. I don't know what to ask for. Or maybe I'm so confused, I'm so upset, I'm so frustrated, I don't even know if I can put words to what's going on in my heart. So I have my list before me, God, but and I'm going to pray through my list, but would you, Holy Spirit, come and also teach me what to pray for? Help me to understand what I need to say, what I need to care about, what I need to ask for. And part of, of that goes back to praying the Bible and praying whenever the Spirit prompts you, right? You're allowing the Holy Spirit to teach you what to pray instead of just always saying what you think would be best. And sometimes our hearts are so full because of pain or difficulty or whatever it may be that all we can do, Paul is saying in Romans 8, is just lay there in neediness and say help and let the Spirit intercede for us with groans too deep for words. Now I'm sure we could say a lot more about praying in the Holy Spirit, but let's just leave it at those three things. Praying in the Holy Spirit means in reverse order of the way I presented them to you, admitting that we don't know how to pray as we should and letting the Spirit guide us. It means that we let the Spirit guide us, secondly, by praying biblical passages and categories and words. And it means, thirdly, that we let the Spirit guide us by responding to every impulse that He gives us to pray. Now, very briefly, a final question from this passage. We've asked, why do we often struggle in prayer? We've asked, how do we go about praying? We've asked, what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? And finally, fourthly, we need to ask, why is any of this important? Why is any of this important? Why should you care about prayer? Just because, well, that's what Christians do. The pastor's supposed to tell us to pray, is that to pray? Is that kind of the bottom and top of the situation today? No. Well, why should we care about this? It's not just because we're supposed to. There are good reasons for it. One reason. An obvious reason, and we've said this already, is because God answers prayer. Prayer is efficient. Prayer is a wonderful use of our time. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. So prayer is our access to God's command central. Prayer is our access to Christ who has all authority in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28. Why wouldn't we take advantage that we can come to this God who has all that authority? Why wouldn't we come to a God who loves to answer those who cry out to Him? Prayer is quite useful because God answers. But more to the point of this passage, we should care about praying in the Holy Spirit because praying in the Holy Spirit, remember Jude says, is a means by which we keep ourselves in the love of God. Praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in the way we've been talking about this morning, is a log that we can throw on the fires of our devotion, on the fires of... Of our love for God. Remember what Jude says. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How? By building yourselves up on your most holy faith, by waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, by snatching other people from perdition, but also by praying in the Holy Spirit. Jude says praying in the Holy Spirit will fuel your love for God. Now, how does that work? How does praying fuel our love for God? Is it just automatic, okay, I prayed so many times this week, and so at the end of the week God's going to like boost my love meter and everything's going to be fine. Is that how it works? No. But it works. How does it work? Well, because when we pray, God works. And then when God works, He works on our behalf, doesn't He? When God works, He answers our prayers. He works all things together for our good. And when He does that, in response to our prayers, our hearts are warmed with gratitude, aren't they? Praying in the Holy Spirit, in other words, fuels our love for God in that prayer, by its very nature, evidences our neediness and God's sufficiency on our behalf. Our neediness, like a child who cannot meet his own needs, who cannot provide food for himself, who does not buy his own clothes, who does not pay rent. A child is completely dependent on his father. And when he comes to his father to ask for something, he is, by the very fact that he's asking, saying, I can't do this myself, but you're my dad. And when the dad responds, the son loves his father. The daughter loves her father. And that's what prayer is. It's our... Admission of our neediness, but our knowledge that our Father is sufficient, that He'll answer. It's like my house about 2 o'clock in the morning, three or four nights a week. I lay there. I don't sleep very soundly. And I lay there, and three or four nights a week, I hear uh, one door swinging open, and I hear feet running down the hall, and then I hear someone bursting through the door into my room, and before long, there's three people in the bed instead of just two. And what has happened is one of the children has gotten a fright in the night. Maybe there's a Komodo dragon in the closet is the latest thing. But they've woken up and they're scared and they're saying, I'm going to run to dad. I'm going to run to mom. And that's what prayer is like, isn't it? And because dad and mom embrace and let the child... Come in. You can tell us later that that's a terrible thing to do. But because we embrace the child and let them come in and console them, love is built. And when we run to God, when we throw open the doors and we burst through the doors of His throne room and say, I need help, and He embraces us and He helps us, love is built. And when we see these things juxtaposed, our neediness and our Father's sufficiency... We love to run to a strong, kind father like that. And that's how it is that our praying grows our loving for God. So many times we get it backwards. So many times as Christians we pray because we think that if we pray, God will love us more. But he couldn't love us more, could he? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave His only Son. He couldn't love you any more than to give His only Son. And not only that, but Romans 5.8, remember we've been quoting it every week alongside Jude 20-23. through Romans 5.8 tells us God gave His only Son, not to good people, but He gave His only Son while we were still sinners. God could not love us anymore. So we don't pray because we think it will make God love us more. Jude says we pray because it will help us love God more. It's exactly the opposite of the way we usually think. Prayer will remind us of our neediness. It will remind us of God's sufficiency. Prayer will remind us that our Heavenly Father, if we come to Him and ask for bread, will not give us a stone. If we ask for a fish, He will not give us a serpent. And who wouldn't love a dad like that? So, building yourselves up on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God.